Luke chapter 20, we've been looking at some questions that people have been asking Jesus on Sunday mornings. And, and the last couple of Sunday nights have all centered around a question that people have asked Jesus too. But tonight, uh, the tables have turned and Jesus is the one asking the question. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44. Stand with me as we read from God's word. This is the word of God. And if you let it, it will change your life. But he said to them, How can you say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Pray with me. Father, may this word change us. Use your word to teach us, to guide our lives, to glorify you. In Christ's name, you may be seated. Some things just do not go together. Um... Have you ever have you ever read the the warning label on your medications? Yeah, some things just don't go together. You take certain medicines along with certain other medicines, and it could be disastrous. Um, my my wife uh, has certain medicines that she has to avoid because of medical things, and then other medicines that um, she can not really take because of a medicine that she's taking. Phar- pharmacists pharmacists uh, call this counterindications. It's when two medicines conflict against each other. They just don't go together. And some cases it can even be deadly taking the same, those two medicines together. Some things just don't go together. Uh, A poor man giving investment advice. If your financial advisor is broke, you probably need a new financial advisor, right? Just saying, some things don't go together. A happy mama in a dirty house. They don't go together. You ever known a happy mama with a dirty house? Now, now messy is one thing, but dirty, that's a whole other story. It just doesn't happen. Uh, a, a preacher and makeup advice do not go together also, by the way. Some things just don't go together. They exclude one another by their very nature. They're in, they're in conflict with each other to the point that you just can't have them both. Those contradictions ha- bring us to the place where we have to make choices, where we have to take one and exclude the other. We can't pick both. You can't, you can't have one hand on your sin and one hand on to Christ because they're headed in different directions. You've got to make a choice. You've got to choose. And contradictions make us make choices. Choices like, should I take this one medicine or should I take this other medicine? I can't take them both. Which one's more important? Which one do I need more? What, what's the best way for me? Questions like, should I clean the dishes or mop the floors first? Sometimes those contradictions force us to choose. But some things look like contradictions and aren't. Those are paradoxes, right? They, they look like they both can't be true at the same time, and yet they are. They look like they exclude each other, but they don't. This is, a, this is one of the best tools of learning, and rabbis caught on to this a long time ago, where they would put up a question, because rabbis like to ask questions of their students. They put up a question that would involve a paradox, There would be two scriptures that would completely seem to disagree with one another, and they would say, what does this mean? How does this work out? That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. It forces you to think about how things are related to each other. 
And so Jesus is challenging his audience. What, if you look back in verse 40, you'll read uh, that, that they no longer dared to ask him any questions. They were asking him questions. This morning we talked about the question that came from the Pharisees and the Herodians who had sent their spies. And the spies said, uh, uh, is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar or not? And then the Sadducees come up with a question with this outrageous scenario of this woman who marries a guy and dies. The guy dies and then the next brother takes his role, but he dies. And then the next brother takes his Seven brothers going through this. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus sees right through the absurdity of the example to the absurdity of their belief system behind it and exposes them for who they are. And now they dare not ask him any more questions. So Jesus turns the table and he says in verse 41, but he said to them, how can they say? In other words, how could it possibly be true? He's asking this to set up the paradox. How can they say that Christ is David's son? Now, he is speaking about an Old Testament thing, replete through the scriptures. There are numerous examples that the rabbis had identified, that average readers could identify, that we today identify. That's, that's messianic. And, and it's referring to the Messiah in connection to David. Even, even in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David, uh, God is promising David, to build him a house. And he talks about this guy, this David's son that will establish the kingdom. But even in there, he gives hints that it's not just one son, uh, not just the next son, not just the following son, not just the family lineage of kings. There's something more to it. He says, for example, that I'll establish your throne forever. Well, that's not just a son. And that's not even just a line of sons. That's one son in particular. We can look at that. We can listen to scriptures like Isaiah chapter 9 talking about this coming Messiah. Isaiah 11, Ezekiel 43, and then in in chapter 47. In Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 23, he talks about this. The Old Testament is so replete with examples, Jesus doesn't even quote one of them here. He just quotes the general principle because he knows it's already a given. The Pharisees would believe it. The Sadducees would believe it. And if they agree on anything, well, then it's pretty well settled, huh? Sure enough. Well, of course, they also agreed on killing Jesus, but uh, they were wrong on that one. It was accepted. It was known. Everybody knew the Messiah was going to be a descendant of the lineage of David. Even Luke shows us that that's the case. And Matthew, too because they both include genealogies that trace Jesus back to David. Both of them recognize our Jewish readers are going to need this. But Jesus says, how how can it be that way? How could it be that a descendant of David would be this promised Messiah, this Christ? You know, Christ is from the Greek word, and Messiah is from the Hebrew word. They both mean the same thing. When we call Jesus the Christ, we're calling him the Messiah. How can it be that Messiah would be a son of David? What's paradoxical about that? I mean, the Old Testament says it's true. How, how, could, how, could it, how could that not be true? Well, with a paradox, there's always two truths, right? The second truth, verse 42. For David himself, he doesn't, he doesn't look to other scripture just in general. 
He looks at David's own writings. One of the Psalms of David. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's quoting from Psalm 110. Listen to that psalm. Listen to everything the psalmist writes. This is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this is certainly a royal song. It's talking about a king, but it's not just any king. Verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord is the lowercase, is the small caps Lord. That's Yahweh. But the second Lord isn't. It's the more general word for Lord. So we have God speaking to someone that David is calling my master. Now, who does the king call his master? That doesn't make sense. And then it, what does he say? Sit at my right hand. Right hand, right hand, right hand. Right hand. Where have I seen that? Right hand. Who sits at God's right hand? Who, who is it that sits at God's right hand? Well, you, you say Jesus, but think Old Testament scripture. Who is said to be sitting at the right hand of God? We, we all know the Apostles' Creed, where he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God, from thence will he come to judge the quick and the dead. That's in the Apostles' Creed. We know that that is Christ that is talking about. But think in the Old Testament terms. Who does it say sits at the right hand of God? I'm looking for the specific verse, and it's eluding me. I thought it was in Daniel 7. Apparently it's not in Daniel 7. But it's the Messiah. I'm going to find that verse, and I'll let you all know when I find it. It's the Messiah that sits at God's right hand. So the Lord says to David's master, sit at my right hand. David's talking about Messiah. That's not the only reason we know that. Verse 3, the people are offering themselves, it says, freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Now, who does that? How do the people have holy garments? Come on now, we just studied Revelation. Y'all should know this one. And wash the robes in the blood of the Lamb. It's Messiah that's giving them the garments. It's Messiah to which they are presenting themselves. This isn't just a king. This is the king. This isn't just a, a son of David. This is the son of David that it's talking about. Verse 4. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What was special about, about Melchizedek? He was a prophet and a priest and a king. All three. Aaron was not a prophet or a king. He was only a priest. Moses was not a priest or a king. Pretty close to the kingly role, but he wasn't a king. David was a king, but he wasn't a prophet or a priest. Nobody in the Old Testament 
After Melchizedek fills all three of these roles, but Messiah is pictured filling all three of those roles. He's in that same kind of priestly line as Melchizedek was. That's not only a priest, but also a prophet of God and also a king. Only Messiah fits all three of those categories. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. This is not Yahweh. This is the general word for Lord. The Lord is at your right hand. It goes on to say, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Verse 6, who is able to execute justice among the nations? God and Messiah. That's it. So what we have is a divine king being referred to in this psalm. And David is calling him my Lord. And yet it is David's son. Verse 44 of Luke chapter 20. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? If Messiah is to be Lord, Lord to David, how can he be the son of David? How can he just, how can he be the descendant of David and yet be exalted above David? Go back in the Kings and Chronicles and read the stories of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Every single one of them, you will find either one of two statements. You will either find that they did evil as did their fathers before them, or you will find that they did good walking in the ways of David. No king is ever said to be more righteous than David. None of his sons... You look through the kings of Judah, none of them do they exalt above David. There used to be a rule in Philadelphia. When you're building a building, it cannot be higher than Benjamin Franklin. Ben Franklin sits on top of City Hall in Philadelphia. And so every building that was built up to a certain point was not as tall as Ben Franklin. It could be an inch shorter, but it had to be shorter. They finally decided, you know what? We're running out of space. We need to build bigger than Ben Franklin. So what they did was they made an exception. They said, as long as the building doesn't obstruct his view, as long as it's behind him. So Ben Franklin is facing out toward the harbor. He needs a clear line of sight. Anything behind him can be as tall as you want to be. But nothing obstructs Ben Franklin's view. That's the way it is with David in Jewish history, in Jewish understanding of history. David is the one of whom nobody ever exceeds. You might get fairly close. You might be really good, really holy, really righteous in your days, but you're never going to be better than David. And yet David is looking at someone and saying, my master, God said to my master, how could a son of David be exalted over David? I mean, that's just not the way it works. The fathers are always exalted over the sons. To the elders belongs wisdom, and the young learn from them. The young never usurp over the elders. That's why when you, uh, when you go into a, uh, an Indian tribe, you'll find that the chief is, if not the oldest man, he is, he is really close to the oldest man living. And when he speaks, everybody else is quiet to listen to what he has to say, because nobody is better than the chief. He's the elder. That's why in the church we have this thing. Um, we, don't, we don't always call it this, but we do have this position that is called elder. It's not just because you're the oldest person here and, and you were here before anybody else. That's not what makes you elder. 
What makes you elder is the respect that you've garnered over time. Now, there's something about those that are older. There's something about those that have come before that their descendants look at them with special esteem. Sometimes because life has been harder for them. Sometimes because they've gained so much wisdom that when you talk to them, it's like drinking water through a fire hose. It's like everything they say just pours out wisdom. So how does a son of David become exalted above David? How do you get any better than that? How do you you get to the point to where even David is calling this one master? Let's back up a second. When you said the word Messiah in the first century, the most common term that would be used to describe Messiah is son of David, in part because of the Old Testament passages, but in part because it was recognized that the Messiah was to fill the role that David once filled. Now think about David, think about his reign. He's the king over a united Israel. Israel is probably slightly more prosperous under Solomon and certainly at a little bit more peace. But David is recognized as the greatest king in Israel's history. He took a nation that was barely hanging on together. They had just formed their national identity under Saul, but it wasn't very strong. And man, did they need a lot of work. And this little shepherd boy comes along, takes the throne, And God is with him every time he fights a battle, everything he seeks to do. Jerusalem is growing by leaps and bounds. People are starting to send tribute. He's making trade deals with with other countries around. I mean, this is a king who is establishing Israel to prominence. And the heart for David among the people, they overflow with love for him. And to recognize that one of his sons, one of his descendants would be the Messiah. It was a way of renewing the promise that God had made long before. He made it in the Garden of Eden. The serpent will bite his heel and he will crush the serpent's head. It was something that was promised to Noah, to Abraham, now to David. It was an ongoing reminder of the promise that God had made to send Messiah But you see, the problem was when they looked at David, they looked at the king. They looked at the political means. They looked at at the administration of the country. They looked at things from the temporal eyesight of making Israel prosperous, enlarging its borders, securing its control, making Israel the greatest among the nations. That's not God's Messiah, though. Not not totally. Now, is it wrong that Messiah is a son of David? No. God himself said it. You can't really argue with God. But is it wrong that he's only a son of David? Maybe what Jesus is saying here isn't that these things both can't be true, but you've got to change the way you think about Messiah to see how they can both be true. If you're only looking at Messiah as a son of David who will take the throne of David and bring prosperity to Israel... Bring an eschatological hope of Israel's greatness among the nations. If that's the lens you're looking through, you're looking through an incomplete picture of who Messiah is. doesn't mean that he's not going to make Israel prosperous. It just means that that's not all he's doing. You see, this one 
that was David's son was not just a son of David. He is not just the son of David. He is the son of man that I know Daniel 7 talks about, who presents himself before the ancient of days, who is given authority. And he's more than just the son of man. He's the son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The problem here is that they have looked at Messiah through a lens that would be better used for looking at a solar eclipse, just a little pinprick and a dark piece of paper put over the eye. They could only see a teeny tiny portion of what Messiah was supposed to be. That's why this looks like a contradiction to them. That's why David can't call his own son Lord, because your picture of David's son, your picture of Messiah is just too small. No, but when you look at the full picture of Messiah, you realize he is both Lord and son of David. Because you realize that what makes him Lord of David is his godly nature. Philippians puts it this way, being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of man. When he had come as a man in his external form, David's Lord became David's son, born into the lineage of David, God in flesh. You might say, well, the Jews wouldn't have understood all that. No, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have. They were looking for Messiah to be a king. They just had the wrong idea of what a king was. I can't blame them. I, I used to not know either. I thought a king was just a big fat guy sitting on a throne with a crown, could make people do whatever he wants. That's the king. That, that's not my king now. My king now humbles himself to the point of obedience, even to death death on a cross. And for this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So whose son is Christ? He's David's son and he's God's son. Whose Lord is Christ? Well, he's David's sword, and he's mine, and I pray he's yours too. Father, thank you for sending your son, your wonderful, exalted son, who is exalted through humility, who won victory with a cross, who won victory by securing our salvation. But even more than just us being saved, who won victory by securing your glory. Forgive us when our vision of Messiah is self-centered and political, or temporal. Forgive us when you're too small in our eyes. We, we need bigger eyes. Would you grow our vision of you? Would you help us to see just how great you are, Messiah, Son of David, Son of God? Would you help me, Lord, and help all of us to be more messianic in our words, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our actions? Father, we're yours. Use us as you will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.